to a Hope 103.2 podcast. The Jesus who famously taught about love also spoke of judgment. There's no avoiding the topic. Perhaps the modern aversion to the idea of divine punishment comes partly from a justified revulsion at the old-fashioned fire and brimstone preaching in some quarters of the church. But there's probably another more basic factor. We simply don't like it. The preferred God for many today is the vague, distant creator who kick-started the universe, but who now, if he thinks of us at all, warmly approves of most of what we do. But according to Jesus, when God establishes his kingdom and puts everything to right, he will condemn all that is opposed to his just purposes. This is going to include ethical agnosticism, no less than religious hypocrisy. Love of God and neighbour, then, is not simply the shape of an authentic human life. It is the very criterion of God's judgment. Jesus spoke of this regularly and without any embarrassment, and he even cast himself as the central character in the theatre of divine judgment. Let me quote. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter the kingdom of heaven, but only he who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name, and in your name drive out demons and perform many miracles? Then I will tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me, you evildoers. The idea of Jesus as judge both comforts and disturbs. It's reassuring on the one hand to know that someone as compassionate and just as Christ is entrusted with the judgment of our flawed humanity. And yet, as anyone who has read the Gospels will know, Jesus was uncompromising in his critique of our refusal to love both God and neighbour. Compassion and justice go hand in hand in the figure of Jesus. And in the final events of his life, these themes became strangely intertwined. Christ's extraordinary life as healer and teacher and future judge ended abruptly and in apparent failure. Crucifixion was the Roman Empire's summum supplicium, ultimate punishment, usually reserved for political dissidents. No one could talk of a coming kingdom and of his central role in it without provoking the wrath of Rome. But political explanations tell only part of the story. Far from being a failure, Christ's death on a cross was the ultimate expression of God's justice and compassion. On the eve of his execution, as he shared one last supper with his followers, he spoke of his imminent death as a sacrifice which would guarantee God's forgiveness and open up for us God's kingdom. Let me quote. Jesus took bread, gave thanks and broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. 
I tell you, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine from now on until that day when I drink it anew with you in my Father's kingdom. Within hours, Jesus' blood would indeed be poured out, not as a simple act of martyrdom, but as a willing substitute for those facing judgment. By Christ's sacrificial death, we who have failed the divine imperative to love the Creator and care for our fellow creatures can be freely forgiven. More than that, can share with Christ in his Father's kingdom. The healer, teacher and judge is also the saviour of the world. Well, if the New Testament had left Jesus in a martyr's tomb, this would have been a perfectly respectable way to end the story of a great Jewish teacher and healer. But contrary to all expectations, the followers of Christ insisted that their saviour had been raised from the dead. And their claim, for which many of them gave their lives, launched a movement that would utterly transform the world. Mainstream scholars agree on three things. The claims about Jesus' resurrection were immediate, not part of a developing legend. Secondly, the tomb of Jesus was indeed empty shortly after his burial. And thirdly, significant numbers of witnesses claimed to have seen him risen from the dead. As with miracles generally, how we interpret this data depends not so much on historical evidence, which in the case of these three points is very strong, but on those underlying convictions about God. The first Christians, of course, had unflappable convictions about God, and so had no hesitation declaring that their teacher, healer and saviour had been raised to life as Lord and God. The point is powerfully stated in one of the resurrection scenes of John's Gospel. Let me read it. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, Peace be with you. Then he said to Thomas, Put your finger here, see my hands, reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Thomas said to him, my Lord and my God. Then Jesus told him, Because you have seen me, you have believed. Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. Well, no belief is more central to Christianity than that this teacher, healer and saviour was raised to life as Lord and God. As the great Oxford Don C.S. Lewis once said of his own move from atheism to Christian faith, a man who was merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not be a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with a man who says he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make your choice. You can shut him up for a fool. You can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronising nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. The God of common conviction, of our common sense, 
has opened up his kingdom to us in a tangible way in Jesus Christ. Christians seek to live in the light of this. Christians believe that Christ's healings provide a glimpse of the restoration of all things in God's coming kingdom. They see in Jesus' teaching, especially in his call to love God and neighbour, the shape of an authentic human life. They revere Christ as the one entrusted with God's final judgments, and they rely on him as the one who died so that we might be freely forgiven. Above all, Christians believe that Jesus' resurrection establishes him as the divinely appointed Lord. If all of this is true, nothing could be more important, more urgent, than to express to your Maker your desire to trust in these realities. When asked by his followers how to express oneself to God, Jesus taught them the so-called Lord's Prayer, or Our Father. It's a beautiful expression of trust in God, a plea for forgiveness from God, a request that the kingdom of God would shape our life here and now. If appropriate for you, please use the words to express your own desire to entrust yourself to the God Christ has revealed. Our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come, your will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. Forgive us our sins, as we forgive those who sin against us. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For the kingdom, the power, and the glory are yours, now and forever. Amen. Hope 103.2 Thanks for listening.